for you and you alone are worthy to be praised. And Father, we are here before you now. I pray with open hearts and open minds and open souls to receive this, your word. And Father, the encouragement, the life, the faith, the building up that it provides. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Reading as we have continuing in our series from James. If you would please take your Bibles and go to James chapter 2, James chapter 2. And I'll be reading uh, a few verses here. In James chapter 2, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said it, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. May God add a blessing to his word. I know what you're thinking. Those are a lot of verses. How long is this sermon going to be? <laughs> yeah, Mike has got an afternoon game, so no. This morning as I, uh, I interacted with you all, and as I do every Sunday morning in the Sunday school classes and meeting people at the door, and, and as I stand and just look at you and just kind of work the room, I notice that we're all different, Right? We're different social classes, or at least we come from different social classes. We come from different ethnicities, different economical classes, different nationalities. And we have come from different religions, with some having never really been in church before until they were saved. And what has brought us together which always brings us together, and you've heard me say this more than once, is Christ. 
It's Christ. It is Christ in us that brings us together. It is Christ in us that allows us to be so diverse in who we are to gather together and be one as Christ. And yet, at times we fail, unfortunately, in certain areas as a church, as people of Christ. And one of those areas that we're warned by the reading of the Scripture that we have this morning is that we sometimes fail in the area of partiality. This is what I want to speak about this morning as we have discussed over the past few weeks and how we are to receive the Word of God, if you recall. We are to be Quick to, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. How we are to respond to the Word of God by being doers of the Word of God, just not listeners. And this week we will continue within that sub-theme and that it's imperative that we practice the Word of God. It's one thing to hear it. It's another to listen, it's another to do, but it's another still to continuously practice the Word of God. Make it a part of your daily life in every aspect of our life, not just the big ones, but in the little interactions that we have with people where partiality can enter into, sometimes unnoticed by us in our own blindness until it's pointed out by the Holy Spirit or others. And so the imperative this morning is to practice the Word of God in every aspect of our life with the motivation of love. For it is love that we live this life in Christ. It's love that we share this life in Christ. It's love that we come together in Christ. I was talking with uh, Clay this week. We were talking about unity, and there's a theological unity where we all have the mind of Christ, but then there's also the love of unity where we love one another in Christ, which I pray for all the time in the church because unity is very sacred. It's very hard to achieve, and it's very easily broken. Now, I say practice when I say practice the Word because practice actually applies the Word of God in everyday life situation. And it's the love that I just spoke about that motivates us to do it, that empowers us to do it. So let's begin by examining James's Word as we start in chapter 2. My brothers, in verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, if you recall last week at the end of the text, we examined James' outline, true religion, right? And this true religion is a forerunner to what James is now introducing in showing partiality in your practice of the word. Now, the historical context of the time of James's letter here uh, really kind of lends to what's going on here. Okay, And because James is one of the first letters, or is the first letter of the New Testament, the world in which James was writing was one filled with partiality. 
It was filled with partiality between the rich and the poor. The haves and the have not. The high social class. The lower social class. There was also ethnic divides and racial hatred. There were Jews and Gentiles. Slaves and masters. Greeks and barbarians. And the list goes on and on and on. And with all churches, the believers that come into the church bring these prejudices in with them until they come under the blood of Christ. Just like we do. You brought your prejudices into the church. You may not have known it, but you did. And so James begins this section with a very strong statement because there must have been something going on in the churches. He must have heard it or he must have seen it. And now he's going to address it. And as a result, James admonishes his listeners to show no partiality or favoritism as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this for two reasons. First, James knows human nature very well. For he himself showed partiality in the past. He grew up in a class system. He was a Jew. He knew what non-Jews were and where, who they were. He lived under an oppressive system, under Roman rule, and segregationism, and separatist culture, being a Jew. He knew left unto themselves that human nature will subdivide itself based upon a wide variety of criteria, thus favoring one group over another, or one person over another. That's human nature. We see it today in our societies. No matter what country you live in, you see it. We subdivide by color, we subdivide by class, we subdivide. Even if we're in the same color, the same ethnicity, we'll start subdividing there until it's down to two people. And then you subdivide there because one's taller than the other. And that's what he's pointing out as far as human nature. The second reason James addresses the right, this right out of the gate is because at the very heart of God's Word and law and the message of Christ is inclusiveness, not partiality. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of each and every one of us, who holds the balance of life in this universe in the palm of his hand. He shows no partiality. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. So we have an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference, which means it's a consistent theme throughout the Word of God. In fact, there's Levitical law that says in the judgment... In legal judgments, you shall not be partial to the poor or the rich. You shall judge justly, regardless of their station or situation in life. Now, 
as I was talking to Adam before, sometimes you read and say, okay, God is not a partial God. He's, he's impartial. He shows no partiality. Well, wait a minute. Then why did he choose the Jews? Why did he choose Israel to be his people? It's an obvious question. I've asked it myself. Doesn't that kind of contradict God being impartial? Well, in order to answer the question, we've got to dig a little deeper into the meaning of the word partiality. Not only does it mean favoritism, but it means to judge someone from external appearances and then either accept them or not accept them based on that premise. Now, when God chose Israel, it was for an express purpose in revealing himself to the world, and to ultimately to introduce the world to Christ through his people. God did not choose Israel because of any external attribute. They weren't the tallest of people. They weren't the shortest of people. They weren't the wealthiest of people. They weren't all blondes. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7.7, God tells Israel that he did not choose them due to an external attribute element or attribute, but because of a covenant that he made with them for an express purpose. And so throughout God's word, God never shows partiality in that he accepts some and not others based on external appearances. That's not how God operates. Oh, some people will say that's how he operates. There are some people that have twisted that in faith, in churches, to justify the impartial from one group to another. But remember what the Lord said to Samuel. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ain't that true? Ain't that true? Sadly. Glory to God that he doesn't, sadly, that we do. And it's also true with salvation. I love the story of Peter. You know, if anybody's been around and listened to me, you know, me and Peter, we're two peas in a pod. We're very much the same. And that story of Peter in Acts chapter 10 is one of my favorite stories. And within this story, Peter is in Casarea, if I said that right. And he goes to the top of the house to pray at noon. And while he's in a trance, or while he's up there praying, God puts him into a trance and then reveals to him a sheet descending from heaven. And in it, there are all manner of animals, right? And with the Jewish law, there were some that were clean, some that were not clean, right? And God commanded Peter to kill and eat. And Peter's reply is, no, 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 I'm, no, I know the law, Lord. I'm not going to kill and eat anything that is common or unclean. And God says, no, Peter, I want you to kill and eat. And Peter replies again. God challenges him three times, kill and eat. And each time, Peter resists. Now, The vision, when he came out of the trance and he came out of his prayer and he descended from the roof, Peter was confused by this. He was perplexed by this. What is God showing me in this? 
And all behind the scenes, God was moving him into a direction. Because soon after that, some men arrived from the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a non-Jew. And they sent for Peter because Cornelius received a vision from God to have him sent to him. Love how God works behind the scenes. And he knew that he had to call Peter to his house. And so Peter came to his house. But before he entered into the house, he said this, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And later in the story, Peter says in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. You see, Peter's mind had to be refined. It had to be renewed. And that law that he was specifically stating was not a Levitical law. It was an addition from the Pharisaical law. And God had to renew him. And as a result, the Gentiles began to receive the Word of God. So what is the point the Lord is making to Peter? If God shows no partiality in anything, especially in salvation... By way of His grace, then partiality is incompatible with the Christian faith. And how have we missed that over the centuries? When the church actually did separate people and were partial to one group over another in our history. In fact, He demonstrated it in your own salvation. He didn't choose you because you were good-looking. I know that comes as a disappointment. He didn't choose you because you were popular. That guy's got it going on. I need him in my family. He didn't do that. He didn't choose you because you were rich. He didn't choose you because you were poor. He chose you because he loves you. You brought nothing to the table. Praise God that we don't. Because none of us would probably measure up. We'd all be standing outside. Now to further this point that James has brought, and he prepares us now for a hypothetical situation, which I don't know if it was really hypothetical, because I think James has seen this or heard this going on in the church. But he provides a hypothetical situation in order to test our understanding of what he is saying. So let's look at that in verse 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes to your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's the hypothetical situation, which I, again, I don't believe is hypothetical. And it brings us to the first question. Why do we show favoritism? 
Why are we seeing what he's writing happening in the church? Why is it when a rich man walks in with fine clothing and gold rings, and oh, by the way, did you know, historically speaking, not everybody could afford gold rings and fine clothes? Did you know they rented that? They can. There were actual providers that would say, hey, you're going to an event or whatever. We can rent you golden rings so that you can walk in and be impressed to other people. Why? Because the Jews and the Romans felt that if you were blessed with riches, then, well, the Jews felt you were blessed by God, right? And the Romans felt, well, you're a man of high standard in society. But if you're poor, hmm, in the Jews' mind, hmm, maybe God's punishing you or you've not been blessed by God. And to the Romans, well, you are a nuisance. You're invalued. You're a drag to society. But why do we show favoritism then? Well, the common belief is because either we desire something from the one we favor. Think about it. We desire something from the one that we favor. And this can be because of self-esteem issues. In which we desire to be around the cool people, right? Those that have it going on. Or the popular people, oh, look, everybody loves that person. i got to get in on that. Or the charismatic and kinetic. Oh, man, man, you ever listen to this guy talk? You ever see how she carries herself? I want to be like that. We can't, so what do we do? We try to get as close as we can to it. Or we always want to be around famous people. I remember one time I was in the airport and Dennis Green, coach of the finest football team to ever grace the field, Minnesota Vikings. 60 feet of repentance right here, buddy. Anyway, and I was like, okay, Tim, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then he went through the screening, and I was sitting there waiting for my wife, and I believe my daughter, too. I can't remember. Anyway, Nicole shaking her head. No, I don't know what trip you're talking about, Dad. But anyway... I think it was, oh, we were picking up my niece. And I said, uh, good luck this season, coach. Thank you. That was it. You know, sometimes we can get starstruck, right? Oh, oh, my boss, when, when my coworker brought up the fact that he coached Josh DeMille in hockey as a kid and knows him very well, and every time he's in town, he talks to him, my boss was like, I've never seen a person Fain over another person. Oh, yeah, I got to meet him. I gotta, that's how we are, right? We get, we get awestruck by famous people. We want to be around them. Really, we want to be seen next to them to show how we look. So we want to be recognized with them in order to show everybody how we got it going on. Now, in the early churches, they actually had reserved seating. So for that rich man to come into the church and to be assigned and take a seat, somebody had to give up that seat. Now, that person who gave up that seat made everybody know that they gave up their seat. But to the poor man, go stand over there. Go sit over there. Sit at my feet. That's a servant's position. That's a low position. 
Now, some of you might say, well, okay, okay. I, I understand what you're saying, Tim. You're hitting this pretty hard, but what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Don't we naturally align with people who are like us? There's studies that have been shown when you walk into a room, you'll gauge the room and you will go sit, not knowing anybody in the room, you will go sit next to people who are like you. So isn't that natural? Isn't that how we are supposed to act as human beings? I don't know. Are you not now a new creature in Christ? Hasn't the old passed away? Hasn't the new come new? Haven't you clothed yourself with Christ? Haven't you renewed your mind? Are you not now supposed to be living the implanted word that we talked about last week? And so James says, okay, there's the scenario. Now let me point out the errors in the fact that you show favoritism to drive home his point. And the first error is found in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the first of four errors that they made. And these are errors that we need to take note of. Judging others, here's the first error. Judging others based on appearance with evil thoughts. That was the first error. Now, that doesn't seem to be so benign, now does it? That seems to be pretty serious. In fact, this question was designed to probe the consciousness of those who are reading the letter. To look beyond themselves, to examine themselves in a manner that they wouldn't have done before unless they were challenged to do so. And so it challenges us too. And what James is pointing out is that they're making distinctions between classes where one is elevated above the other based on purely external appearances. And the evil thoughts that they're having are those thoughts that are comparative as the world would compare someone in which we are not to do. You see, the man came into the church and they immediately started to compare him as the world does. Oh, this man's wealthy. He desires a place of honor. That man is poor. He needs to sit over to the side. That's how the world does it. That is not how believers in Christ are to do it. Look, if there was one community in this world where all should get equal treatment, it's the church. It's the church. We are not like to, we are not supposed to be like the world. We are to be countercultural. We are to stand out. We are the city on a hill, a light. We're to be different. Not because we want to be different, like, oh, I got to be different. It's natural that if you live this life in Christ, you will be different out there. And they will notice it. And for some, it'll be the light that brings them to salvation but other times it may even lead to persecution. But we show the light nonetheless. And so their first error is judging others based on appearances with evil intentions in their heart, which we discussed were selfish in nature. The second error is found in verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world and rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which has promised to those who love Him? 
But you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into the court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what error do we see in these scriptures? We see the second error. Discrimination towards those whom God loves. Now James is not saying that by position of circumstances of being poor or rich, that God loves the poor more than the rich, as that would be partiality. But God has revealed throughout His Word that the poor in status and spirit are more apt to receive the fullness of the gospel, whereas the rich are hindered by their wealth and self-sufficiency. That's one of the dangers with wealth. You see it as your source of security. You see it as your source of identity. You see it as your source of life. But God has chosen the weak things of this world. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.27. And I believe this was uttered this morning. Uh, Ron had, uh, I believe he mentioned this when we were talking almost on a similar topic. He said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Additionally, the Bible has much to say about how we as believers are to treat the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Do you remember in Matthew when Jesus said, you know, feed me, clothe me? And they said, when have we done these things to you? And he says, to the least of them, you've done it unto me. Psalms 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Look, we should never discriminate against anyone because God loves everyone. And we are to love everyone and to show the love of God. And this brings us to the third error they made. And we find it in verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Here we see the third error, and that third error is they fail to truly love as commanded. They fail to truly love as commanded. Now that commandment of love is called the royal commandment, as you see in your if your, if your verses uh, say that, I think most of the translations do use the word royal. And it's used royal for three reasons. The first is the commandment of loving God and our neighbor is the supreme law of the kingdom of heaven. We all know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the basis of redemption.
Additionally, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Supreme law. It's the supreme law of the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, it's called the royal law because it embraces and includes all the other laws. Listen to Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe, one, owe no one anything except love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. If you truly love through your heart in Christ, you would never do anything that would sin against your God. Jesus himself says, for if you love me, you will follow my commandments. That's the motivation. And if we truly love one another, guess what? You won't sin. You won't sin. You won't covet. You won't envy. You won't be angry with somebody. You won't be unforgiving towards somebody if the love of Christ is in your heart. Thirdly, it's called the royal law because it authenticates our relationship with the Father. Love this verse. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. You want evidence? It's the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ. That's what abides us with Him. And so the royal law is supreme law of love. And what James is saying here is that the law in which you are to strive for and keep by showing no partiality is love. Because if you love someone, you would never say, sit over there, sit at my feet. Just get away, this rich man's coming. You'd never do that. In fact, it might even be opposite, but not to a level of sin. You would actually go to the poor man. You would honor him. You would help him. That doesn't mean you would ignore the rich man. But you wouldn't ignore the poor man. Now, when you think of this, this whole royal law, and if you look at verse 9 again, I can't help but think that those that are reading the Word, that are listening to what James is laying down here, that they didn't go, oh, like the light bulb came on. Oh, yeah, I, I, I did that. Yeah, oof. The light bulb should come on because it's the Word of truth. And sometimes we need the word of truth to open up our mind as to the errors we commit. And that leads us to the fourth and final error that James addresses. 
We find it in verses 10 through 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Or excuse, guilty of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There we go, we hear that again. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here James brings home the partiality they are demonstrating to others and that he is revealing their final error. And that final error is to keep the law of liberty, which is the gospel of Christ. James obviously is a Jew. He knew the law. He was very well skilled in the law. James was the man who was in Jerusalem or the first church council who said, here's my decision upon this when they brought forth, should Gentiles be circumcised? He knew the law inside and out. And James knew that the law of Moses governed by the external pressures of the whole series of rules and regulations that were imposed upon them that they must keep. And it was a burden. It was a yoke, a bondage. But within the law of liberty, the believer is governed by the inner compulsion of love and the gospel of Christ. He follows the right way, the way of love to God and to love men, not because of an external law compels him to do so, but because of the implanted word on his heart and because of the love of Christ in him. Remember, we love because he first loved us. We are able to love because of the love of God. And it's the implanted word. In verse 21, we talked about that. And it's the implanted word that guides us, that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us to lead us, to change us. But you know something? We can violate the law of liberty just as easy as the Jews violated the written law. Here's an example. When you have a Bible study at your house or a gathering at your house, do you open it up to everybody in the church? Or do you select those that you are comfortable with? Years ago when I was a youth leader here in the church, wonderful ministry. I thank the Lord for that ministry. We had several different groups over the years of 14 years. And one of those groups that we had, there were some young kids coming up, right? They were becoming of age to join the youth group. And there was a segment of kids, I think there was two to three kids, that really didn't have anywhere. They, they'd finished the, the um, um, Awanas. Should write that down. They finished up the Awanas, but there was, there was nothing for them in the middle. And we had a teen group. Some of those kids were coming up, and I was concerned for them. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to be in limbo. They graduated from Awana. 
And so I posed to the youth group. I said, hey, we have these kids out here in limbo. Why don't we bring them in? And the response of those kids, those teenage kids, and they're teenagers, was no. We like the group that we have. Again, they're, they're teenagers, but it reveals how easy it is to go down that road. I want to invite so-and-so to my house, but not so-and-so. I'm not comfortable around that person, but I am around that person. When we have potluck, look at the tables. I'm not saying we do this. It's just human nature. We gravitate towards certain people. And I'm not saying that's a sin, but we need to be conscious of the fact that we should never exclude. Never exclude. Brothers and sisters, we've been saved by the blood of Christ and have been redeemed. And it is my belief that the Bible teaches that if we have a sincere faith in Him and possess the Holy Spirit, it's eternal. But we still will be judged. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what we have done, whether good or bad. How we treat people. That will be revealed in the time of our judgment. So then the question is this. How do you want to be judged? Do you want to receive the rewards of being loving towards all people with no partiality? Or do you want it revealed during your judgment, your failure to do so? And we're not talking a judgment of eternity. We're talking about rewards or the lack thereof. Listen, brothers and sisters, James shows us within our text this morning that a mature Christian is one who should practice what they hear and the motivation for that practice as to what they hear should be within the liberty of love. James uses the setting of a church and the sin of partiality to reveal what it looks like when we fail in doing so. And in essence, what James is truly teaching is that we are to live out the law of liberty in truly loving others by showing no partiality. Especially within the church. Therefore, let us practice what we have heard here this morning. Let us show no partiality, but let us love all as God loves all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives us, the empowerment that it gives us. But also, Father, I thank you for the conviction that it gives us. So, Father, we lay our hearts out to you right now, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would correct us in the areas in which we need correcting. And that, Father, we would trust the love that you have given us to love those that we may feel not comfortable around. Oh, Lord, I pray your blessing to be upon this church. And I pray, Father God, the testimony of this church has always been how loving and open this church has been and how friendly it is. I pray that that would continue. And I pray that this sin of partiality would never enter into the doors of this church. 
and that it would never enter into the doors of any church that proclaims your name, and that it would never enter into the doors of our homes or our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.